Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Hello and welcome to And Justice for All. Once again this week, I will be turning over in the podcast to Professor Margaret Rung and Professor Andrew Trees, who are co-chairs of the Programming Committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, which will be held from September 14th to 17th. Today's episode, Transgender Through Time, features a conversation with Professors Celeste Chamberlain and Natasha Robinson. Celeste is a professor in the History Department at Roosevelt University. Her teaching and scholarship focus on the history of medicine, mental illness, public health, and early modern Europe, with a particular emphasis on race and gender. Natasha is a lecturer in the Department of Government, Law and Justice at Roosevelt. She has worked as an attorney specializing in criminal defense for 20 years and was an assistant public defender for the law office of Cook County Public Defender for 12 years. Natasha also headed the Law and Public Safety Academy in four-year pre-law honors program at Hirsch High School and Al Raby School for Community and Environment. Andy Amargi will be talking with Celeste about the transgender community in historical context going back to early modern and even pre-modern times, and to Natasha about criminal justice issues related to transgender community. Transgender rights are likely to be one of the primary battles in the country's ongoing struggle to secure and expand the rights of all Americans. So I'm excited to hear what they have to say. Enjoy the conversation. everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Today we're going to be talking about transgender through times. Andy and I are really excited to have this conversation with two of our esteemed colleagues, Professor Celeste Chamberlain and Professor Natasha Robinson. And since we are going to be marching through time, we'll start with some questions for our historian, Celeste. Clearly, you're a specialist in early modern European history. You've taught many courses on race and gender. So we'll start with a question about the historical context of transgender lives and identities. So first, we'd like to talk about the fact that, you know, gender has always been a fluid concept, but is there any consensus about when non-binary or transgender notions of gender first appeared in the historical record? Sure, it's a great question. Well, I'll start by saying that gender fluidity actually tended to be really the global norm prior to the construction of a gender binary. And so, you know, we start thinking about transgender in opposition to that rigid gender binary in the West, really when we first start 
noticing the term gender being used itself in a binary sense was in the 11th or 12th century, first in France, when the word genre was being used to denote the quality of being male or female. And that led to the English word gender being used for the same purpose by at least the 15th century. So as I said, though, as we know, gender fluidity and multiple gender identities tended to be the norm in indigenous societies, pre-colonial indigenous societies throughout the world. And when we talk about that gender fluidity, the, the concept of third gender is a common way of referring to um gender fluidity, but it's not to say that there were three genders instead of two. Third gender, rather, it's a gesture towards thinking about infinite rather than finite possibilities. And so ultimately, the main changes that occurred, which led to a shift from multiple gender subjectivities to the rigid binary norm, had to do with the emphasis on social order that was embedded within medieval European culture. It was based on the belief that everyone had to perform a clearly defined role in society. Otherwise, there would be widespread instability and social collapse. And so it was a very delicate balance of, of what they call the great chain of being. And so then the gender binary was then reinforced by a combination of Christian dogmatism, the patriarchal household economy, and a variety of different legal codes that were functioning simultaneously throughout Europe in the Middle Ages. Can I ask a question about the, you, you just referenced indigenous cultures and the, and the fluidity so in terms of a historical record, how is that represented? How, how do we know about that fluidity? It depends on who you ask, um, the way it's represented. So if we're going to talk about, you know, the context of the West. And so I'm going to kind of focus in broad strokes on the Atlantic world. We do see references to what would ultimately become known as, you know, transgenderism in European sources, you know, around the time of colonization of the Americas. And so that they did notice that there was something other than a binary, but it's typically referred to in terms of derision. And so, I mean, there are records of a more broad subjectivity in indigenous sources as well. And one of the ways we know that also is that there's the persistence of certain third gender communities that are sort of the, the, the heirs of that ancient tradition. So for example, the Mushe of Oaxaca in Mexico, they're recognized as third gender people. And so even though colonialism really sort of disrupted, you know, all of the indigenous traditions in the region, there was a persistence of, you know, communities like the Mushe that still retain a place of legitimacy and respect in Oaxacan society. And that's just one example. There, I mean, we could go to any, pretty much any continent and find similarities. Yeah, that's really interesting. I just wondered, for example, if we see representations in, in paintings, like cave paintings even. That's a good question. <laughs> and so this is where we're actually really privileging in many ways, without even realizing it, the sort of Western way of categorizing gender. We base it, when we think about, you know, how do we understand what gender means in the West? It's yeah. based on you, you, you sort of determine someone's gender based on what you see. Yeah. And, and I, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of the theorist. It'll come to me. And I, I didn't think about this before you asked the question, but there is a woman who she writes about West African, West African metaphysics. 
and sort of pre-colonial West African metaphysics. And she said that one of the things like in the West, we have a really hard time getting our head around is that gender is based on the visual. In traditional West African metaphysics, it's not. It's based on what you hear, based on the logical premise that you hear someone before you see them. Mm-hmm. And so our whole system of categorizing gender itself is based on that Eurocentric bias. So... <laughs> I mean, we really have to rethink even how that how we categorize identity is such a specific construction based on that Eurocentric model. I'm also curious. So we go back to the pre-binary times. Wasn't there, and this I could be completely wrong, but was there a different sort of valuation in the sense that now transgender is seen by many people as threatening and undermining the appropriate forms of behavior? But back then, I seem to remember it had some that that sometimes actually it carried extra value in the sense that someone who was outside that binary was a shaman or a seer or had some sort of gift that it came with positive connotations rather than negative ones. Absolutely. And there are multiple examples of that. I mean, certainly that was the case of the Moucher, that they're held in very high regard. And also in the context of what is now Peru, the Moucher, the third gender, gender subjectivity was seen as a mediating force between you know, male and female, um, but that there was something inherently divine that almost sort of transcended the need to categorize. And so third gender people were viewed with um, a great deal of esteem. And and I've also read about the same situation in parts of what is now South India, that third gender people were viewed with a great deal of reverence for that reason. Thanks. Mark and I also tell you, we're curious, the kind of terminology that they used in Europe to refer to transgender individuals through time, going back pre-binary and then up through more modern times and things like the Enlightenment with its obsession with categorization. And we're wondering how they refer to them and what that shows us about how they thought about transgender individuals. Well, yeah. So first of all, I will say that there certainly are examples of gender fluidity in Europe, sort of ancient parts of Europe prior to the advent of you know, Christianity. And this is not, of course, to you know, assert that there's some, some, something inherently transphobic about Christianity. It's this very specific, rigid medieval dogmatism in Europe. But that there, there was, in fact, gender fluidity in Europe prior to that. But they sort of deliberately tried to erase that from the historical record. So they didn't even have real language with which to describe gender fluid individuals. So one of the first examples of how Europeans developed this terminology is with Spanish colonization in the Americas. So they use the the first word that they really come up with is verdache, which then, you know, becomes uh, sort of the norm in 19th century anthropological literature. And we kind of make the assumption that, oh, it's sort of this acceptance of transgenderism. We assume that it's sort of neutral, but it's actually based on the sort of this flawed assumption that they had room in their sort of mental universe to understand transgenderism as normative. Verdache actually comes, the word itself comes from, it's both used in Persian and Arabic, ancient Persian Arabic sources to describe the younger male partner in a same-sex relationship. So the problem with that is it sexualizes transgenderism. It conflates sex and gender. And that really sets the tone for how Europeans then come to see and describe transgenderism. It's always sexualized. So after the use of Verdace, then they tend to describe, you know, depending on which, you know, country of Europe we're talking about, but whatever their word was for sodomy. So sodomy, it's, it's, it's often tied to sexual deviance. Sometimes they're described in 
in the same words that are used to describe prostitutes or sodomites, but they never use words throughout the early modern period. I'm not aware of any instance where Europeans use words to describe transgender individuals that are not sexualized, that do not moralize or stigmatize transgenderism. So it really becomes reduced just the idea that there's the sexual act. It has nothing to do with this sort of broader sense of identity that they might have. Yep. And because that is exactly the premise that the European gender binary is based on, that gender and sex are conflated. So I'm curious to swap on the Enlightenment. I mean, I know from my work that they are obsessed with categorizing. And how do they handle this when they're doing it? How do they talk about it? And how do they impose the sort of Enlightenment rationality on these individuals who didn't fit this nice, neat binary that they were relying on? Well, that's a great question. And actually, you know, and I think that this is another example of that great paradox of the Enlightenment, where in theory, there's this rhetoric of toleration, um, rationality, progress, freedom, all of these things. But in practice, um, to kind of borrow from, you know, the theorist Michel Foucault, the Enlightenment actually becomes very repressive even more so for transgender individuals because it uses that force of science and rationality to render gender as absolute categories and that there's this sort of rationalism, that there's absolute truth in science. So it further reinforces, in fact, the stigmatization of people who don't fit into those categories because now it's sort of like the belief that, well, science says so. (laughs) There's nobody but male or female. So it actually ends up making things even more difficult and stigmatizes transgenderism even further. Do we see, just follow up in your reference to Foucault, you know, he always talks about these sort of punitive regimes that can impose by enlightenment rationality. Do we see these start to get imposed on individuals who refuse to conform to that binary? Do we start to see them yeah. sort of registered as psychologically deviant or somehow suspect or morally deviant, all those things? So they start being, yeah. in effect, sort of criminalized to some extent. Yes. And it, it sort of works in tandem with a larger change in which, um, you know, prior to the Enlightenment, canon law and the church really kind of had the monopoly of how to criminalize transgender people. But as the church loses its influence, the law becomes more secularized. Then, So the language of moral deviance then gets transformed into secular laws as social deviance. So there's, you know, transgender People are still viewed as deviants, but as opposed to being heretics, now they're viewed as enemies of, of social order. So it's just sort of the rhetoric gets transformed with the same effects. And they will be laws start to appear on the books where they will be punished by secular authorities for violating the norms, yeah. the societal norms of behavior. Yeah, and it's also reinforced by communities, too, because there are rituals, you know, at sort of the community level. So there's, obviously there's sort of a larger mechanism of the law to reinforce those types of orders and, and the norm of how gender should operate. And at the community level, there's community policing of people who do not conform to the gender binary. So there, there are rituals meant to shame them and sort of force them to adopt you know, specific gender roles that, you know, society assigns to them. And so it sort of functions at both the local and the larger sort of administrative level in tandem. Does it collapse in other things? So the local community, for instance, so if a woman refuses to conform to what they see as appropriate female behavior, are they sometimes then cast as witches? Or is that sort of stop with the, okay, so they 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 get labeled with that as well? Oh, absolutely. Okay. But what's interesting is that there are obviously, there's always exceptions. And, you know, one of the 
really interesting exceptions is the case of Queen Elizabeth I of England, who kind of turns the whole idea of gender on its head. Because so she sort of uses pronouns interchangeably. She's queen, she's king, she's he, she's she, she's they. Um, because she's sort of making the argument that, well, that the identity of being a monarch supersedes all other identities. So it's almost like gender becomes irrelevant. So that role of her uh, you know, being assigned the identity of a woman at birth necessitates her to adopt a more fluid gender identity. But what's interesting is I think people have this tendency, They, I hear this all the time, that people want to say that Elizabeth I was so progressive, she was like this feminist icon. No, she was not. <laughs> because it was one of those examples of, you know, do, you know, th- what's good for the monarch is not good for the people. So that role was specific to her, but she still enforced very rigid punishments against people who were transgender in English society. So that was a, that gender fluidity was specific to her particular role in society, but was not acceptable for anybody else. So a powerful woman like her could take advantage of it in a way that a normal person would be punished. So we do associate Elizabeth I with empire and um, colonialism. And, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the influence of empire, colonialism, capitalism on our understandings of the third gender. What's the relationship between colonialism and gender identities? Sure. Well, first of all, as I mentioned, you know, their gender subjectivities were widespread in indigenous societies. And so colonialism and capitalism in the early modern, in early modern Europe, mixed with a very sort of repressive form of Christianity that clashed with gender fluidity. And, you know, as I've established, it criminalized, marginalized and sexualized their gender peoples. And so and I've already mentioned the terms of derision that European colonists came up with. And I think that sort of connection between colonialism and the gender binary did play a role in constructing the colonial order because it essentialized indigenous gender fluidity as depraved. And so that, of course, enabled European colonizers to pathologize and hypersexualize indigenous peoples. And then, of course, you know, assert that they were in need of proper moral guidance from guess who? (laughs) European Christians, which paved the way for that paternalism of European colonialism. And it was, in fact, much of the way in which these colonial constructions of gender binaries that also informed the ways in which race was constructed in the Atlantic world, because they sort of take that model of, you know, hyper sort of sexualizing indigenous peoples, and they then come to associate blackness with the perversion of the normative gender binary by developing a stereotype of the you know hypermasculine black man and the hypersexual black woman, which reinforces a pattern of pathologizing black people as animalistic and defined by physicality rather than reason or intellect. So imposing that rigid gender binary was one of the most central tools of colonialism in the early modern Atlantic world. Wow, that's fascinating. Thanks. I guess you've talked a little bit already about the criminalization of transgender lives. So maybe this is a good time to pivot to more contemporary discussion and to ask a few questions of Natasha, Professor Robinson, who is a lawyer by training, who worked for many years in the public defender's office. You also wear a hat as an educator 
um, examining the criminal justice system in the context of racial and gender inequities. So I'd like to ask you to just start by discussing the inequities and dangers that transgender individuals face in today's criminal justice system. Well, thank you so much. Some of the inequities that I have uh, seen and witnessed as both a practitioner and as a professor includes misgendering, where you have those who are charged with criminal offenses and their paperwork or their court file or the police report does not align with who they identify themselves to be. So what happens is, is that if there is someone named Natasha, for example, that is my gender identity. However, on my legal documents, I am listed as Nathan, then it presents a, a, a problem for law enforcement as well as for the courts, because now they need to know or need to figure out and most times they interject their own interpretation instead of following what the person says, they have to figure out how do we classify them? How do we normalize them? Um, you had uh, Professor Chamberlain talking about uh, gender fluidity and the fact that it is criminalized. So now you have a system which is not designed for criminal justice, but for criminal justice to be systematic in how they charge and how they house and how they sentence and how they punish. So misgendering with trying to figure out, okay, how do I identify this person in court? Sometimes it can be ma'am instead of sir, or it can be Mr. instead of Ms., or it can just be them, the other because you're by no means us, you're the other. I have seen situations where in terms of transgender persons being housed in jail or in prison, there is a decision as to where do we put, quote, this person, end quote. Do we put them with the women? And then you may have women who identify as cisgender who are saying, no, don't put this man here. But then if you put the person in the male population, then you may have the male population saying, don't put this girl here. So now you have not just a person who is trying to get through and to navigate through the criminal justice system as a presumed innocent person. Now you are also trying to have them fight another front, which is the identification by the court in terms of who is going to advocate for me. And if you don't know how to engage in language that is inclusive of me, then how can you speak for me? You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Wow, yeah, that that is, yeah. Um, and it, it really reinforces what um, Celeste was just talking about in terms of the institutionalization of this binary system that just sort of sits on top of all of us and really renders it in virtually impossible to deal with that fluidity and, and, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Exactly. If, if you if you are talking about, let's say, for example, if you were arrested on a Friday night and you do not go to bond court, let's say, until Saturday or Sunday, then how you were presenting on Friday may not be how you present when you go in front of court. And so that is a mischaracterization. If you are in the process of transitioning, 
and you need access to your hormone therapy and it is not deemed legislatively as medically necessary the same way you would if you were diagnosed with, let's say, cancer or something like that, then you may not have access to the medication that you need to it in order to complete your transition. So what happens is, is that you come out looking, quote unquote, like a freak. You look like someone who says that your name is Natasha, but you look like Nathan or you say your name is Nathan, but you look like Natasha. And so you have people who are strangers who are trying to advocate not through the lens of humanity, but through the lens of criminality. And that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that struck me about some of your talks on Facebook is just how you're so amazingly personal, like you were talking about your clients and making a personal connection to them and seeing them outside of this system of a, you know, I've been assigned X client. And that really struck me. And just as you were talking, it was clear that that has a tremendous value um, when you're dealing with people who are struggling on multiple levels, not just with a charge that's been um, leveled at them. Absolutely. The only way I can make it akin to possibly something I could go through is when I was a Spanish minor in college and I went to live in Spain for three or four months. And so everybody around me hardly speaks English, but English is my, uh, how should I say, lingua franca. That is my language of currency. So if I don't speak the language of those around me, then how can I make sure that I'm advocating for myself or I find myself in a situation where people are equipped to advocate for me? And so in a similar but not same lens, when you have someone who is transgender being advocated by someone who is just, you know, being very, very flip in how they represent their client, then you're not just dealing with legal language, you're dealing with gender identity language and you are not advocating for your client. So that makes that client feel even more intimidated. Like I'm just going to get thrown into the system. I'm just going to be another statistic or another casualty. And that breaks up the relationship between the attorney and the client, as well as the attorney advocating to quote unquote, the powers that be the judge, the prosecutor, the family. You may have family members who may say, well, I don't know what I call them. I just call them. It's just, it's it's multi-layered and it takes, I would say, a skilled professional, yes, but one who has empathy to be able to go through and figure out what are the issues at hand and how are the best ways to address them? Yeah, I mean, it must feel really disempowering for that person to, you know, just be at the beck and call of this higher system. And as you said, you have to you have to be the advocate. Yeah, it's it's like it's akin to if you put a piece of tape over your mouth and everyone is talking to you about you except you. Right. And in the criminal justice system, if you do not have that language knowledge, if you don't have the access to understand what is going on, if you do not have the time for someone to be able to explain it without making you feel like you are less than or that you're ignorant or that you don't know what's going on, then these are continual barriers that prevent 
legal professionals from getting actually to the, 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 the crux of the case, which is, is this person legally guilty or are they legally innocent? And so that type of advocacy needs to be ramped up in the system as well as outside of the courtroom, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, what sort of reform specifically could you imagine or would, would help would help the situation so that transgender people are treated with greater fairness and, and are treated empathetically and whatnot so that the, the system doesn't impose this kind of rigid dichotomy on them that doesn't work? I think the first reform that I would say in terms of what needs to be addressed is language. We don't really realize as much how much language has power. And when you are dealing with gender fluidity, when you are dealing with the criminal justice system, to be able to say this is what this means, but also this is who this person is, then I think that can blend itself to at least trying to advocate in a way where the person who is advocated for feels that they have a direct investment and a direct involvement in their outcome, as opposed to just being a silent bystander who is watching everybody in power have power over them except for themselves. So I think that language starting with that, I also think that there needs to be a learning, if you will, of empathy. Now, I I know that everyone is not born with with compassion and, and the ability to care for their fellow person, but I don't think that a lawyer walking into a courtroom is automatically empathetic. It's like, okay, well, walking into a garage doesn't make me a car. Walking into court does not make me an empathetic person, especially if I am representing someone who needs legal assistance. And so I think that we as legal professionals all need to use a little bit more empathy as it relates to understanding that what you call someone, what you may uh, uh, not label them, but what you acknowledge them as has power. Because if you come at it in the right perspective, then you'd be surprised how that relationship gets strengthened when you are able to say, I see you. And as a result of seeing you, now I can hear what you're saying and then take your words, your experience, your reality and advocate for you as opposed to replace you. I feel like we've talked about this probably it's intersects in some interesting ways with things like Black Lives Matter. I mean, it seems like I don't know what you would suggest about this, that there also have to be just some very deep, almost a level of like not just structural, but cultural changes in places like police departments to treat people differently, right? And not categorize them initially by race or gender or whatnot, but to. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the one of the parallels that I see between those who identify as black, like myself, and one who identifies as transgender is those are phenotypes. You can't get around the visualization of that. Uh, So when you see it, then you respond a particular way. There is a minister who is deceased. His name is William Augustus Jones. And in his book, God in the ghetto. He talks about how how I see my God. That could be a deity. It could be a system. How I see my God then 
determines how I see my anthropology, meaning how I rank people who are important, which then dictates my sociology, which is now how I treat the people that I see. So if I believe that my God, G-O-D, little G or big G, is a system that is privileged for white, male, heterosexual individuals, then that means I am ranking my humanity. So if you are anything other than that, then you are other. You are devalued. You are debased. So we are dealing with a time where a lot of biases, I won't say are increased as much as they are exposed. And so you have people who are in a position of power where they are using their biases, not as a tool, but as a weapon. And you also have people in power who are weaponizing their discretion. So when you have those who are looking at the choice by law enforcement of whether or not to go into the criminal justice system or we can handle this on the block, we can handle this on the street or, you know, there there are diversion practices or programs we can go into. If you have an officer who, again, is already saying my sociology, how I deal with humans is based upon what I worship, then you black life, then you transgender life are less than. So it allows me to weaponize my discretion and either take your life, which you shouldn't have in the beginning, or use it in a way to show an example to other co-workers. This is how it should be done. And that is a problem. There should be no reason why in August 2020, there are almost 30 transgendered deaths or murders that have occurred and there has been nothing that has come to pass. There should be no reason why we should see videos of people being attacked for no other reason than because of their gender identity and having nothing to say about it. And so some of these fronts that we need to fight on, they're very intersectional in nature. Some things are not just black lives or transgender's lives. You have a lot of intersectionality that can occur. And so I think we need to have some conversations about what that looks like in terms of not just reform, but in terms of being proactive. How do we go into these situations? How are we using our law enforcement training and policies? How are we addressing this in higher education? How are we addressing this in religion or in faith practices? What does this look like in voting? There is a website, translifeline, I think it's .org or .com, that is helping transgender individuals get the documentation that they need so that they are counted in the census, so that they are able to go and vote and there be no, hey, we need to go to the side because who you are and what you, you know, uh, present are two different things. It's it's very intersectional and it's it's levels to it that I think we kind of need to tease out and figure out what to do about these situations. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that question of voting came up in your Facebook live feed. So Natasha has a a Facebook live feed called Legalese Please. And 
one of the wonderful things about having you as a colleague is that you are clearly a public intellectual and you're putting your you're putting your expertise and knowledge to work for a greater good. And recently you hosted a really powerful discussion entitled I'm Every Woman, Black Trans Women and the Lives That Matter. And we all know that transgender individuals struggle within broader movements, whether it's the LBGTQ movement, the women's movement, the Black Freedom Movement, to be accepted and to have their concerns addressed. And in that, in that broadcast, you interviewed Caprice Carthens and you discussed the intersection of race and transgender lives. So I just wonder if you could just talk for a minute about some of the really important takeaways from that conversation. Uh, absolutely. And and I want to provide an update. Caprice Carthens, who is uh, one of my dear buddies, she was just recently inducted into the Chicago LBGT Hall of Fame. Wow. So she's she's famous, famous. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, the former president of, of Roosevelt, Charles Middleton, is also a member. So... Yes, yes. And so it's good company, good company. And so in my conversation with her, some of the takeaways that I had is one, language matters, which, you know, I discussed uh, previously. Another takeaway that I had is it's okay not to know and it is okay to ask because there are some realities and terminologies that I was not familiar with and did not feel comfortable in using. So as a academic, as an attorney, I wanted to make sure that I understood what me saying one term, what that meant without trying to be offensive. Another thing that I learned was about the fact that when we're talking about, as as Celeste talked about, the binary systems, is that we need to become more of a society where we have both and instead of either or. And I think that sometimes in the wars and the fights in which we engage, it's pick a side. You either have to be black or you have to be queer, but you can't be both. And so in in, in talking with Caprice, what I learned is that it's a both and. It's not always a preference as much as it is a duality or, or, or being able to say, I am both and I can navigate all of these spaces at the same time. Some other things, takeaways that I learned from her is about being able to say that there is a difference between, and this is something that is referenced in the book, uh, Queer Injustice. There's a difference between stereotypes and archetypes. And in the criminal justice system, for example, we think we're dealing with stereotypes, which is when you visualize transgender, you think someone who has, you know, hair that is disheveled and, you know, fishnet tights and and high heels and all this type of stuff. And that's a stereotype. But our archetype is more entrenched. It is more embedded in, in systems and beliefs and and going to Celeste when she was talking about the the notion of being a deviant, that is what a lot of transgender persons are perceived as. Is I'm not even going to look at this case file because clearly you were involved with dealing with a minor or trying to engage in sexual event. It's always reduced and relegated to sex instead of maybe this transgendered person had to defend themselves and the law allows for self-defense 
And it does not say everyone except transgender persons get the blanket or the equal protection of the law. So these are some of the takeaways as well as me realizing what I needed to learn as well as what I needed to unlearn. And that puts or that put me in a a authentic and a transparent place of learning where I just sat back and say, okay, I know I'm bringing certain biases to the table. What can I do in my roles to make sure I'm not perpetrating the problem? Those are some of the takeaways that I got. Thank you so much. You've been an educator, both the Chicago Public Schools and at Roosevelt University now. And we're just wondering, uh, how do you think schools and universities can better support transgender students? That's a podcast unto itself. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm the daughter of a, of a preacher, so I will limit my comments to three points. <laughs> uh, the first point, <laughs> the first point is I think that we need to watch the criminalization of transgender students. So, for example, if a student comes and they present visually as one way, instead of just sending that student to in school because they may be disruptive, what you're doing is you're criminalizing their identity. You're saying to them, even though that may be who you think you are, that does not work in this space and this place. And so now we're just going to relegate you to the margins and you figure that out on your own. So I think criminalization by way of, of, of punishment, by way of suspension is one way. I think another way in which schools and universities can support transgender students is just listening and just having conversations where you create the space for students to be who they are or who they may wrestle with, because there may be some students who are saying, I don't know what's going on. I just know that given in these situations, I do this, or I believe this, or I feel this. And so being able to say, I don't have the answers, but I do have an ear. I do have a shoulder. I'm able to listen to you and whatever it is, whatever your experience is, I'm here to support that. So I think that is is another way. Lastly, besides providing emotional support is I would say providing legal knowledge about letting students know that not only are these the legal avenues that you can pursue if you feel you're discriminated against, but let's talk about other people who have gone through same or similar situations as you legally and see what are the legal protections? Yes, but also what are the emotional resonances that let you know that although you feel alone, you are not alone. And then that way that builds community that allows students to be able to fully live in the expression of who they are without feeling chastised or or castigated uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, that's thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, this was really enlightening. <laughs> um, and we appreciate that both Professor Chamberlain and Professor Robinson took time out of their busy pre-semester preparation period to, to speak with us today. These podcasts are all leading up to uh, the uh, American Dream Reconsidered Conference. And we hope that you will join us um, on the panel discussion, The Struggle Continues, which will focus on LBGTQ plus uh, movement, where it's where it's been, where it's going. And we look forward to 
seeing you in the audience um, for that panel or other some of our other fabulous panels. But I just wanted to again thank our colleagues um, for being with us today. Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.